Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. Uh, but tonight we're in Matthew five forty three to 45, and this will be a two-part lesson this week and next week, uh, as you can see, entitled, uh, Love Your Enemies. Um, 2,000 years ago, Jesus sat on a mountainside, and he spoke to a crowd. And in that crowd was a group of men, and those men were the most respected men in their community. Uh, when it came to morals, uh, they were the holiest of men. Uh, when it came to Scripture, nobody had more knowledge of Scripture than they did. And as such, they were respected and they were revered by their community. Uh, everybody looked to them as the model of what a uh, a person should be, especially a Jewish person, should be. And on that day, and some of these men, I'm almost 100% sure, were in the crowd that day, and Jesus points to those men, and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you're not going to heaven. Now, I don't know if we understand how shocking a statement that would have been. I mean, can you imagine there's a group of men in your community and everybody thinks they're just the most revered and the most holy and the most knowledgeable and, and respected, and Jesus says, yeah, they're not going in. you got to be better than them. Now, I can tell you this. If I would have been there on that day and he makes that statement, that would have just raised two huge questions for me. And I, and I think it should still raise two incredibly huge questions for us today. Because see, that statement says two things. Number one, it says there's a righteousness that looks good on the outside. There's a righteousness that everybody looks at and says, wow, that guy, if anybody's going to heaven, she is. There's righteousness like that, and Jesus said that's not good enough. But that also tells us or infers that there is a required righteousness that it takes to get into heaven. So this is the first question I want to know is how do I get it? If theirs isn't good enough, if what they've got isn't good enough, well, tell me how do I get the righteousness that I need? Now, I answered this question a few weeks ago, and I'm going to answer it again tonight because, number one, I just it's the best subject in the world as far as I'm concerned. How do I obtain the righteousness? The answer is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let me say that again. By faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, I'm sorry, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In, in, in Latin, it's, it's pronounced sola fide, only through faith. I want you to listen to Romans 4, 4 through 5. This is Paul, and he says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now I want to stop there and make sure we understand what Paul's saying. The Bible tells us there's two roads. On one road, it's very narrow, and there's only a few people on it. 
And on the other road, it is broad, and almost everybody is on that road. And everybody that's on that road is one day going to come to God at the judgment seat, and they're going to bring their works. They're going to rely on their works, and they're going to bring those works to God, and they're going to say, see, God, I've been a good person. I've been a good husband. I've been a good father. I've been a good citizen. I haven't hurt anybody. I've gone to church. I was sincere. Here's my works. Now give me my wages. Give me what's due to me. You see, the problem with that is, and, and this all religions do this, by the way, the problem is that everybody forgets that you're not just bringing your good works to God. You've got to bring all your works. You don't just bring the good thoughts and the good words and the good actions. You bring all the bad stuff. You bring all the sin. And see, the problem is, Scripture says, if you've broken the law in one point, you commit one sin, you're guilty of all of it. See, if you come to God with one sin, just one, then the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages for that one sin is death. Eternal separation from God. But Paul says there's a better way. And look what he says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. Is there a better sentence in all of history? but believes in Him who justifies the sinner. Believes in Him who justifies the one who isn't good enough. His faith is counted as righteousness. You see, the moment we put our faith in Christ, we are declared righteous. It has nothing to do with your personal holiness. It has nothing to do with how much money you gave to the church. It has nothing to do with how good of a person you've been has nothing to do with your sacrifices or your religious acts or any of those things. It is in faith, faith, faith in Christ alone. And that's it. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. How, how does God see me as righteous? Because I'm in Christ. I'm in union with Him. His righteousness is credited to me, all because I just put my faith in Him. That is how you get the righteousness that you need to get into heaven. Now, that's one question. But here's my second question. What does this righteousness look like? Because remember, there's a group of men over there that's the most holy men I've ever met, the most religious men I've ever met, the most knowledgeable men I've ever met, and they're not good enough. So if it doesn't look like that, then what does this righteousness look like? And listen to me, folks. I want you to hear me. It has to look like something. This idea that you can walk down an aisle, profess faith in Jesus Christ, and somehow be saved, and then walk out that door, and nothing changes, I don't see that anywhere in my Bible. Nowhere in my Bible. True salvation equals a changed life. Listen to James 2.17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith that does not have accompanying works. You see, James is not saying you need faith and works to be saved. What he's saying is faith that saves always has works. It always has a behavior. It always has actions that follows it. It's like Jesus said, you must be born again, right? 
A baby that comes into this world and that's born, what does it do? It screams, it cries, it turns red. That's as natural, that's, it's just natural. Well, that's what this is saying. When you're born again, what's natural to the born again man is a righteous behavior. It's righteous actions. It's a new way of thinking, a new way of behaving. So what are these accompanying works, these accompanying behaviors? Well, that's what Jesus has been explaining to us in Matthew chapter 5. He's given us six illustrations of behaviors that accompany a born-again experience. Now, we've already looked at five of them, and tonight we come to the last and final illustration, and that is love. Now, Jesus introduces this illustration in verse 43. And he says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, by this time, we've been doing this, we've been on these illustrations here for now for about six weeks, so we've kind of got into a rhythm. So your first question should be, well, where does it say that in the Old Testament, right? You remember the first illustration, Jesus said, You've heard it said, Thou shalt not kill. Well, that is a direct quote from the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That's a direct quote of the Old Testament. Once again, Exodus 20. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's a direct quote from the Old Testament. Again, I believe Exodus 21. So your first question should be, when Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, our first thing should be, well, where is that in the Old Testament? Where does it say that in the Old Testament? It doesn't. That is not a direct quote from anywhere in the Old Testament. Never in the Old Testament does it say, hate your enemy. But somebody in that time frame, in that culture, is teaching that it's okay. You've got to love your neighbor, but it's okay to hate your enemy. Now, where are they getting that from? Okay? Let's go back and look at uh, Matthew 5.43, and we're going to unpack this a little bit, and I'll show you where this is coming from. We're going to look at three words. In this, uh, we don't normally do it this way, but we're going to do it tonight. We're going to look at three words. Uh, The first word we're going to look at is the word love. The second word we're going to look at is neighbor. And then the third word we're going to look at is enemy. Okay, let's start off with the word love. Now, most of you that's been around Bible studies and Christianity for a while, you know that in the Greek language, there are four different words for love. Now, that is completely different from English. In English, we have one word for love. We say things like, I love my wife, I love my grandchildren, man, I love my truck, I love, I love chocolate cake, man, I love my tractor, boy, I love to go fishing. We just throw that word love out all the time because we only got one word for it. But in the Greek, you have four different words for love that mean four different types of love. There's the word eros, which is romantic love, like you'd have between a man and a woman. You have storage. I think that is how you pronounce it. This is familial love. This is a love you have for your children or for your grandchildren or somebody in your family. And then there's another Greek word, phila, which comes from Philadelphia, uh, which is brotherly love. This is the love of close friends. And then there is a fourth word, and you all know what this word is. That is the word agape. That is the word that Jesus uses here in Matthew chapter 5. Agape, your neighbor. Now, agape love, we know it as God's love. 
And it's the same, by the way, it's the same word as used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's the word agape. Now, there's two things about this love that sets it apart. It's volitional and it's sacrificial. Now, what does that mean? Volitional mean, means it's a choice. You know, we say somebody did something of their own volition. That means nobody forced them to do it. They just did it. Agape love is not motivated by anything on the recipient's part. It's just a choice that somebody makes to love somebody else. It's not motivated by, it's not a romantic love. It's not motivated by appearance or attraction. It's not a a familial love. It's not motivated by any type of relationship between uh, the two people. It's not motivated on status or, or any kind of thing like that. It's just a choice of one person to love another. That's it. That's known as agape love or God's love. The second thing that sets this type of love apart is it's sacrificial. Now listen, we call agape love God's love. I certainly don't mean that God doesn't have emotions. God does have emotions. We are made in His image. But His love for us is not an emotion. You need to understand that. God, God didn't look at me and say, wow, man, that Derek is a lovable guy. I'm going to to love him, man. How can you not help but love that face? Look at him. That's not how God does it, right? I was his enemy. I hated him. I didn't want anything to do with him. I blasphemed him. And he still says, I'm going to put my love. That's a choice that he makes. And when he makes that choice to love us, the way he demonstrates that is through action. Okay, it's not a, it's not, it's not a, it's not the way, look, listen, I was thinking yesterday, when my grandchildren come in my house, I've got four grandchildren, one more on the way, when, when my grandchildren come on, something just comes inside of me, if you've got grandchildren, you'll know, you're going to love them way more than you love your kids, I'll just tell you that right off, right off the bat, I, and I would die for them in a heartbeat, I'd do anything for them. But they're part of me. I, don't, I, don't, can't even, I can't tell you why that is. But that's not what this is about here. This is just about a choice to love us despite anything on our part. This love is perfectly, I think, perfectly explained in 1 John 4, 10 through 11. John says this, this is love, not that we love God. In other words, it had nothing to do with us. But God loved us. That's the choice. That's the volition. And here's the action. He sent His Son to be the payment for our sins. That perfectly explains God's love. And then watch what John says. Beloved, if God loved us that way, ought we also to love one another that way? Shouldn't we have that type of love for each other? Now let's look at the word. We'll set that aside for a moment. We'll come back to it. Let's look at the word for neighbor. Jesus said in Matthew 5.43, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your Neighbor. Now, here's a great question. Who is my neighbor? God, we, the Bible actually says love your neighbor. We know that, but that's a really good question. Who's my neighbor? Is it the person that lives right next door to me? Is it the person that lives five houses down from me? Is it the person that's in my same neighborhood? Or is it the person that lives in my town? What about the person in my county or my state or my country? Is it just the people that's got the same skin color as I have? Is it just the people that speak the same language that I speak? 
Who is my neighbor? Man, that is an excellent question. It, it, don't just dismiss that. That is a really good question. In fact, the Jews had a running theological debate about who was their neighbor. We actually get a, uh, we actually get a glimpse of this in a conversation in Luke chapter 10. You've all read this before, I'm sure. There's a lawyer, which is just another name for a scribe. He comes to Jesus to put him to the test. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at him. By the way, the job of a scribe was to study and interpret the law. That was his whole job. So Jesus kind of looks at him and says, man, that's your job. What do you think it says? You study it all the time. You read it all the time. You interpret it for the people. How do you read it? And the man says this, and, and he is quoting scripture. He says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looked at him and said, man, you, are, you got that 100% right. You are dead on. You do those two things. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself, and you'll live. And it says the man, wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus, but who's my neighbor? That's a really good question. Who is my neighbor? Again, is it just the person right beside you? So what I want to look at tonight is what did the Old Testament teach about this thing, about loving your neighbor? Well, let's go back to Luke 19. This is actually the verse that the lawyer is quoting. When he quotes that to Jesus, this is the verse or or the passage that he's using. I'm not going to read all 18 verses. I'm going to read one, verse 1, then I'm going to jump down to verse 18. At the very beginning, this is God speaking to Moses, and he said this, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, and and down he gives them a bunch of different commands. And he gets down to verse 18, and he says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the Jews asked the question, Well, who's my neighbor? And and in in studying it, they looked at the very top verse, and they said, Oh, See who he's talking to? He's talking to the people of Israel. He's not talking to the Hittites or the Jebusites or the Amorites or the Canaanites. He's talking to the people of Israel. Ah, my neighbor must be the people of Israel. So based on that chapter, the Jews taught a very limited view of who is your neighbor. In fact, in their mind, your neighbor was another Jew. Not Samaritans. They considered Samaritans to be half-breeds, half-Jews and half-Gentiles. Certainly not Gentiles and certainly not Romans were your neighbor. Only other Jews were your neighbor. Now, just so you know they got it wrong, if you go 15 more verses in the same chapter, you don't even have to get out of the chapter. Just go 15 more verses. It says this, When a stranger sojourns or stays with you in your land... You shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. So here's a stranger, which means it's not a Jew. He's from another country, he's, but he's staying among you. You're interacting with him. And, and, and God says, while he's there, treat him as one of your own. Love him in the same way you love each other. Love him as you love yourself. So that right there blows their whole theology, but they conveniently forgot about that verse. In their mind, in Christ's day, as he stands there in that mountain and he says, love your neighbor, every Jew there would have thought, ah, he means other Jews. 
I have to love other Jews. Now, let's go to the next part. What about this part? Jesus says, you've heard that it was said. Somebody's teaching this. Okay? Somebody's rabbis or scribes or Pharisees, somebody is telling the people, you can love your neighbor, and that's coming right out of Leviticus 19, but it's okay to hate your enemy. Now, what is an enemy? Um, I looked it up in the, uh, in, in the, the, the Bible dictionary. The, the, the definition is the same today as it was then. An enemy is someone who feels hatred toward another, intends injury to, or opposes another. So if you've got somebody in your life that hates your guts, or you've got somebody in your life that would choke the life out of you if they could get away with it, uh, or you just got somebody in your life that opposes you, then that's your enemy. Okay, that's what that means. Now, I put those pictures up there to remind us of something. And here's what I, I want to remind you of. Jesus is going to tell us to love our enemy, okay? This isn't some fancy theological discussion. He's talking about people. So here's what I want you to do. Right now, in your mind, I want you to think of somebody in your life that either hates you or intensely dislikes you. I want you to think, hopefully none of you have somebody that's trying to hurt you, but I want, I want you to think about somebody in your life that seems to oppose you at every turn. Whatever you're trying to accomplish in your family or whatever, this, this person is just opposing you. Y'all got it? That is who Jesus is going to tell you to love. This isn't some fancy discussion and we have a lot of fun and we go home and we go back. No. This is people in your life that he's going to tell us that we have to love. So you keep that in mind as we move through. Now, I mentioned earlier, it doesn't say anywhere in Scripture that you are to hate your enemy. So how did the Jews come to that conclusion? Well, let's go to the Old Testament. What does it actually say about your enemy? Well, this is really interesting. And I I need everybody to, to, whatever you're doing, pay attention. Because we're going to get into some, some... stuff. The first thing it does, it does tell you to love your enemy. I'm going to give you two examples. Exodus 23. It says, if you encounter your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, you must by all means return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, that's your enemy, fallen under its load, you must not ignore him, but be sure to help him. So the idea here is you're, you're living your life, you're in your neighborhood, you're on your farm or whatever, and so you're in close proximity to your, to your enemy. This, this isn't somebody that lives on the other side of the world. This is a person that lives right near you. You see his animals going in and out. You see him going up and down the road or her going up and down the road. And it says very clearly when they need help, you help them. By the way, that is agape love. You're not doing that because you've got any attraction to that person or any kind of emotional feeling. That person's your enemy. You're helping them. You're making a choice to act for the benefit of another person. That is agape love. It's taught right there in the Old Testament. I'll give you another example. Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him water. Once again, that's agape love. Right there in the Old Testament. Okay? So clearly, clearly the Old Testament teaches that we are to love our enemy. So where do they get this other stuff? Well, a couple things. First of all, notice those two situations were very personal. Everybody with me? 
These are, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with somebody on a, on, a, on a daily basis, right? Those are very personal things. Now, let's move forward. Unfortunately, in the Old Testament, there are also scriptures that tell us or told the Jews to kill their enemies. For example, in Deuteronomy 20, this is when the, uh, the people have left Egypt. Uh, they're about to go into the promised land. And uh, this is what God says through Moses. He says to them, he says, You are not to leave even one person alive in the cities of these nations that the Lord your God is about to give you as an inheritance. You must completely destroy, and he, he lists them out, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, so they won't teach you to do the detestable things that they do. Now, by the way, the people in these lands are horrible, horrible people. They sacrifice their children in, in, to Molech. Uh, Kathy and I were just watching. I, I like archaeology, and I was, there's this guy on YouTube I watched, and they have actually uh, uncovered some, some of these Canaanite uh, high places, sacrificial places, and when they, they, they found these big jars, you know, like huge jars, and when they uncovered them, they had little children's bones in them where they had been burned to death. You're talking about despicable people. And, and God says when you go in there, okay, wipe them out so that they don't teach you to do the detestable things that they do for their God. So you can kind of understand the Jews, right? I mean, on one hand, you're being told to love your enemy, but then go in there and wipe them out. Okay? But now, let's keep in mind, this is a specific situation, right? It's dealing with war and, and the taking of the promised land. But let's go a little further. There's actually, actually some scriptures that talk about hating your enemy. These are known as, mostly in the Psalms, they're known as imprecatory Psalms. Imprecatory means to call down curses upon let me give you one of them, uh, Psalm 139. This is David, okay? This is a man after God's own heart. I want you to listen to what he says. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Okay? Now, you can understand the Jews looking at that, right? And you can, th you can see them thinking, well, you know, if it's good enough for David, <laughs> shouldn't we do the same thing? Shouldn't we hate those who hate God? Shouldn't we loathe those who blaspheme him and spit in his face and, 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 and talk about him with malicious intent? So you can kind of see their thinking. Now, let me tell you a couple things about these psalms, by the way. These psalms are always judicial, not personal. It's, it's not about, that guy did something bad to me, I hate him. It's always judicial. It's always very general. And it's always about the honor of God, not your honor. Did you see what David said? Go back and read that. They speak against you. They take your name in vain. They hate you. They rise up against you. It's all about God's glory and God's honor. Not about my personal honor. So we've got to keep that in mind. There is little doubt that the Jews use that, those type of psalms, to justify hating their enemies, which was basically anybody that wasn't a Jew in that day and time, okay? That, that was their justification. It's good enough for David. 
It's good enough for me. Now, I want to talk, before we move on, I want to talk about those psalms just for a minute, okay? Um, and I struggle with this because we're going to talk about something here. It's not easy to talk about, but I want to, I want to bring it out. How many of you have ever heard some form of this statement, God hates the sin, but not the sinner? You ever heard that? Did you know that's nowhere in the Bible? Would that surprise you to know the Bible doesn't teach that at all? In fact, let me give you a couple of scriptures. Psalm eleven five: the Lord approves of the godly, but he hates the wicked. And he hates those who love to do violence. It doesn't say he hates wickedness. It says he hates the wicked. He hates those who love to do violence. Psalms 5, 4 through 6. Certainly, you are not a God who approves of evil. Evil people cannot dwell with you. Arrogant people cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who behave wickedly. You destroy liars. The Lord despises violent and deceitful people. So this, this is talking about God not just hating evil in general or hating sin in general or hating wickedness. He's talking about hating the people who do those things. Now, how do we, how do we balance this out? You see, it turns out both love and hate are characteristics of God. But here's where you have to be really careful. Remember, when I say the word love in English, it, has, it can mean a lot of things, right? And the word hate, when I say the word hate, most of you think, you know, you know I hate that person. You, you think about this intense negative emotion. Or in love, you think about this intense positive emotion. But God's not like that. That's not what this is talking about at all. The words here have more to do with priorities than they do. Think about love is this way. God says, I'm going to love you. And to show that, I'm going to act on your behalf, right? So when God says, I'm going to hate you, it's not an emotion that he has. What he's saying is, I'm going to choose not to act on your behalf. Or, I'm going to choose to act against you for some reason. It's not that he's overcome with some kind of sinful anger. That's not what it means at all. In fact, let me give you a couple of examples. In the Old Testament, you all know the uh, story of Esau and Jacob, right? The, you know, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the firstborn. His birthright, by in that day, he should have got everything that his daddy had. Not only physically inherited, but he is also the spiritual uh, heir of the promises. We should today be talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But we're not. We say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because Esau, the Bible says this, despised his birthright. Now, the Bible doesn't mean that he had this intense negative uh, emotion about his birthright. It just meant that the problem here was his priority. He put a bowl of soup as more important than his spiritual birthright. So the Bible says he despised it, but it doesn't. It's not about an emotion. It's about a priority. How about this? Jesus said, requires us to hate money, hate our families, and even hate our own lives. Jesus doesn't mean that I'm supposed to hate my mother and father it, in the sense of this intense emotion. No. It's about priorities. He's saying, choose me. Put me first. Love me. To the extent that, you, you know, it almost looks like hate for them, for these other things. You certainly, nobody hates their own life. 
that you love Jesus so much that your life becomes secondary. That's what that means. So love and hate, you see them as characteristics of God. And, and listen to me, and listen to me very careful. I'm going to really put a big asterisk by this. In some extent, both of these should manifest in our life. We should love people. We should love our neighbor. We should love our enemies. We should love people the way God loves. That means we just make an, a, a, a choice, a purposeful choice, to act on their behalf. We should want them to come to know God. And we should do everything in our power to bring them. But at the same time, we must hate in the sense that if people continue to blaspheme God and people continue to rebel against God, that we should desire, like David, that God would be vindicated. That God would rise up and show justice. In fact, let me say this, folks. If you look around our culture today and you see what's going on, especially in some of the churches, and you see the blasphemy that's coming out of the pulpits of this country and you don't feel anger, there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. We should be God. Where are you? Put an end to this. Now, with that said... I'm going to warn you, you got to be very, very careful. You see, God can love and hate, and He can do it perfectly without sin, but we're not God. We're not God. See, our problem is, is when we start feeling that righteous anger, it turns into something personal. Instead of just being about God's glory and God's honor, we start making it about us. And as soon as you do that, you've entered into sin. See, folks, this is the problem. This is exactly what the Jews did. They looked at those Psalms of David and they misinterpreted them and they they applied it. Instead of applying it to the honor of God, they applied it to their own honor. They made it personal. So what they did is they end up misinterpreting the law, misinterpreting Scripture to allow themselves to hate people who wronged them. And by the way, once they stepped over that line, it, it, before long it turned in, they just eventually hated everybody who wasn't like them. It didn't have to be their enemies, it was just people who weren't like them. So by the time you get to the days of Jesus, love your neighbor meant love Jews. Everybody else was your enemy. Everybody else was an outsider. In other words, racism and bigotry Prejudice and partiality were the order of the day. Love people who are like you. Love everybody who believes like you and looks like you and talks like you. Everybody else, you're off the hook. That's basically the way they saw it. Now, what about us? Let's bring it from 2,000 years ago on a mountainside to river of life. Unfortunately and sadly... All these types of views and behaviors are not at all uncommon among Christians. Not just today, but even in the early church. I want to show you a few things. Let's go back. I'm going to give you three examples. Let's go back to Acts chapter 6. This is, this is very early in the church. 
It says this, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists. Now the Hellenists were Jews who spoke Greek. So you remember we talked about this, the, you know, you got the Babylonians and the Persians and then Alexander the Great comes in uh, and the Greeks conquer Israel. And the whole world at that time in the Middle East was all Greek. So a lot of the Jews, talk, they started talking Greek and dressing like Greeks and acting like Greeks. And then they got saved along with these Orthodox Jews. So it says a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. You see, in that day, they didn't have welfare and uh, Social Security and any of these things, and a lot of widows had nobody to take care of them, so the church stepped up. And people would bring money, and they'd bring food, and they'd bring clothing, and they would distribute and take care of the widows. But somehow in that distribution, the, 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 the Jewish widows, the Orthodox Jewish widows, were being taken care of first, and the Greek widows were being uh, neglected. You see, even then, people that were a little bit different in culture were, you were a lower status. And that was in the church. Let me give, show you another one. Galatians 2, 11 through 13. These are the words of Paul. He says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. So here's Peter, he's eating with the Gentiles, and these Jews come, and he pulls away. Why? Because he's scared of what people think. He's scared of what a group will think about him, so he separates himself as, from others. Because he's worried about, he wants to look good in their eyes. Or James 2, 1 through 9, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If you fulfill the, law, the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by law. Go back and read this. This is all about rich people and poor people. He's warning people that in the church, you're, 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 you're the rich people, the bankers, the people with money, the, the politicians, you're, you're elevating them. And the poor people, you say, well, go sit over there. And James said, don't do that. That's sinful what you're doing. Folks, this is in the church. This is in the early church. You see, that type of spirit, that divisive spirit, that worldly spirit, was in the early church at the very beginning, and it's still here today. Now, why? Well, the easy answer is because we're sinners. Because we've got sinful natures. Listen to Galatians 5, 16 through 20. Now the works of the flesh are evident... Enmity, strife, jealousy, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. See, the fact is, as long as we live in this flesh, we're going to struggle with a sinful nature. And our sinful nature is prone to divide. That old sinful nature is prone to, to, to divide ourselves up and just hang out with people that look like me and act like me and talk like me and believe like me. That, that's, that's what your sinful nature wants to do. It's always going to be a struggle. That's why, uh, now, now let me say this. There's nothing wrong with gathering with people like you. There's nothing wrong with that. Where it becomes wrong is when you start excluding people who aren't like you. That's the sin. And God cannot bless that. He will not bless that. 
That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. You, Every one of us have got to understand that we're prone to divide. We're prone to put ourselves into these different groups and these cliques. And he says, you've got to crucify that. You've got to kill it. You've got to fight that. Because that's not, that's not agape love. Jesus answers, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, that's what it says in Matthew, by the way, in Luke 6. Luke adds a little more. Let me mention this just in passing. I don't know if I've said that before. You know, a lot of times we think about the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus probably preached, that he preached it one time. He probably preached it multiple times. He preached for three years going around the country. He probably preached this sermon multiple times. So, you know, Matthew records it where he said some one thing. Luke records it where he may have added some extra stuff. But it's the same thing. I mean, look what it says in Luke 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. You see, this is agape love. People that are cursing you and want to hurt you and, and, and are against you. And he says, make a choice. Make a choice to act for their benefit. What are those actions? He calls them out. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. When they're saying nothing but bad, you turn around and return something good. And finally, pray for those who persecute you. Let me say this. The Bible says love them, not like them. I think that's important. When I was a teenager, I remember reading the Bible and it would say love God with all your heart. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor. And I thought, how can I do that? I can't, because to me, in my English mind, I thought love meant this emotion. That's what I thought. And I thought, that's impossible. I, I can't conjure up an emotion for somebody that's my enemy or somebody I don't like. See, I didn't realize that's not what it was about at all. It's about make a choice to act on their behalf. But the Bible says, it doesn't ever says you have to like them. We're not going to like everybody. I do think, though, by the way, I do think, that when you're doing good to somebody and you're blessing somebody and you're praying for somebody, one day you look up and you don't dislike them nearly as much as you did when you started. When you start seeing people the way God sees them, things change. I was watching a show the other night and the show started with this homeless guy and he was a drug addict. He was panhandling and robbing and just doing all these terrible things, right? And you get this, you get this picture of that person, right? What, what a terrible person that is. But then they went back to his childhood and you saw some of the things he went through. Sexually molested, abused, beaten, abandoned. And it didn't take you long to figure out why he was where he was. And that changed how you saw him, right? Oh. See, that's how God sees people. He, he, he says, man, he is under Satan's thumb. Satan has really got him. He's a slave to sin. See, and God loves people. See, He wants us to see people that way. We won't necessarily like them. They're not going to necessarily be like, you know, but we can still love them because God does. Matthew 5, 44 to 45, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good 
and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. I started out at the beginning tonight saying nobody gets into heaven through works. Nobody. And, and Jesus certainly is not saying here, and I want to make sure we understand this, you are not saved by loving others. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is that when you love others that way, it shows that you're saved. When you love others like the way God, your Father, loves, it shows that His blood, His DNA is flowing through your veins. It shows that the apple ain't fall, didn't fall far from the tree. It proves that you're a child of God. It proves that you're born again. Our treatment of others does not depend on who they are, what they are, or how they act toward us. That is agape love. Folks, listen, that ain't normal, right? That's not natural. It's supernatural. Christians don't just do what other people do. In fact, let me say one more thing, and then I'll read a verse and we'll close. I, and I'll just throw this out here, food for thought. I think one of the most tragic things about us is how much our lives are governed by what other people do to us and what other people think about us. Just think about that. I mean, it just governs our lives. I mean, Peter, you know, oh, here they come. What are they going to think about me? i got to do this. Do you understand how this can just set you free? To love other people the way God loves them? And not have to worry, I'm not reacting to what they... You see, Christians can turn the other cheek. Christians can go the extra miles. Christians can love their enemies because they're empowered and infilled with the Spirit of God. They are set free to be who God wants them to be. As kingdom citizens, we say this pretty much every week. We are to behave as God behaves. We are to treat others as God treats others. We are to love as God loves Next week, we're going to hit these final three verses. I'm going to read them tonight, and then we'll close. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. What an incredible, incredible word that it is. God, I pray for River of Life tonight that, God, we will be a, a church that is filled with agape love. I, as I look around the room, Lord, in a, in a church this size, we can't know everybody here, but, God, we can love everybody here with agape love. God, I ask you, bless River of Life with agape love. Bless me, bless every individual here with a, a agape love. That God, that we will just make a choice. We will just make a choice that we are going to act for the benefit of others. Father, I pray specifically earlier when I ask people to visualize someone who is their enemy. Someone who is against them, who is opposing them. Father, I pray even now that you would do something in their life. Not the, not the person they thought about, but the person who is here. That somehow they'll walk out this week, God, and they'll, they'll make a decision in their heart that they will love that person no matter what. And God, I pray that you will honor that and you will just, just pour your spirit out and enable them to do that thing.
God, I pray that you bring them into situations in the weeks to come where they have a, 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 a chance, you have an opportunity to show that God love, that agape love. Lord, if we do this, it changes our families, it changes our church, it changes our county, it changes everything. Because you change everything. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray for this Sunday. Father, this Sunday in church, pray with me. This Sunday, this church will be, there will be a thousand plus people on this campus. There will be a thousand plus people. I don't know how many, how many hundreds there's going to be in this room. I pray for Pastor Henry, Lord, that you infuse him with a, with the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that the words he speak will be anointed. And I pray that if anyone comes into this room and they are blind and they are deaf to the truth, I pray, God, you do what you do. Open their eyes, open their heart, open their ears to see you as I do. And Father, we'll give you the glory and the honor when you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. You are dismissed. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m., in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.